Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Welcome to another episode of The Rest is Politics with me, Alistair Campbell. And with me, Rory Stewart. And we're sitting, we're sitting in a, a very strange bar stool on a round table looking at each other in Harrogate. Through two very large microphones. Through two very large microphones. Really You're fortunately you. tall enough for me to be able to see yeah. you over the top. You can't see me. You can't see you very well, no. And we're, we're going to, later today, doing a live show in Harrogate. Very exciting. This, of course, uh, is a place which was the, the home of the Gilbert and Sullivan seasons here you're not doing Max Miller again are you no I'm not doing Max Miller no Pirates of no, you, should, you yeah. could do Max Miller we have actually had a request for tonight for me to play Happy Birthday on the bagpipes that's very good so I might do that now there's a lot to get through we had a I think quite a significant speech by Keir Starmer at the weekend uh, we've had these frankly bizarre conferences by groups factions associated with the Conservative Party um, we'll talk about the Turkish elections I actually found the elections in Thailand more interesting. I've seen next to no coverage in the UK media of it. We should talk about that as well. Very good. But let's start with Keir Starmer. I, I don't know if you've had time to read his speech, but he actually talked about how he felt the Conservative Party is no longer conservative. Well, I like all that stuff. I couldn't agree more with him on that. I thought that was very strong. So the centre of his speech, he says, as you said, that they've given up on family. They've given up on their international reputation. And he said, if people call me a conservative, I'm not going to be ashamed if being a conservative means those kind of things. So it was a nice push at that part of the speech towards the kind of conservatism I care about. However, what do you think about the speech as a whole? I thought it it did a lot of things that I want him to do. It set out, it was much more rounded about the kind of state of the world and the state of politics than he's been up to now. It's still, I think, deliberately short on the the big ticket policy stuff. But I think this line that he used about you're going to get Clause 4 on steroids, Clause 4, the big thing that Tony Blair did in 1994, changing the Labour Party constitution. I think what he's doing there is setting up the next stages. And he's going to have to be held to that now. I think once you start to say things like that, you've got to come up with well, the big that's, policy that's ideas. the tricky thing, isn't it? Just tell us, where was it? Who was he speaking to? What was this? So it's a conference organised by a relatively new group called Progressive Britain, who are on the progressive side of the Labour Party, probably do want to push more on the on the big, bold, radical side of things rather than the Ming vase. Um, but I, th- I thought it was one of, I really did think it was one of his better speeches. And I, th- I quite like that boldness of, of saying we're coming on, we're bringing tanks onto your lawn. And I, do you know the other thing I think, this thing about the Conservatives, like if I think about you being a Conservative, I think your Conservatism is very much rooted in history, culture, tradition, not changing things unless you really need to and they come along they want to change the, the sort of wreck the health service change the bbc pollute our seas and rivers with unimaginable quantities of human wastage and it's not very conservative and i thought that was a that was a smart place to be but then the next bit of his kind of journey of leadership i think is going to be about taking three or four big areas where the big policy ideas come and that's what we have to see because as you say if you're going to talk about clause four on steroids i mean clause four was huge probably the biggest thing that labor party had done so clause four on steroids i don't quite understand what that can be that's going to be bigger than clause, clause four. 12 <laughs> well, <laughs> really I, clause, clause four. I mean i think this is another problem isn't it for all these politicians that they have in their minds these radical moves so the conservatives obviously completely obsessed with Margaret Thatcher. And one of their problems is that they keep working out 
how they can outdo Margaret Thatcher. But of course, the things she's done can't be done twice. Privatization, setting off council houses, the restructuring the economy, they're going to be able to do them again. He's not going to be able to get rid of Clause 4 twice. What's, what's the big reform that he's going to bring to the Labour Party equivalent well, to Clause 4? Well, he's talking about the reform of public services. But and Clause 4 was a, was a, yeah, a reckoning with the party, Yes, right? it was. But that's what, you know, we've talked a lot about how leadership is about telling the party things it doesn't want to hear. People go on about Clause, clause 4, I think much more because of the... The symbolism, symbolism of that change. It wasn't. It didn't really remind indicate. us what clause four was. What did it say? Oh yeah. God, the ownership, common ownership, and means of dis- distribution and supply. I can't remember. Production, distribution, and supply. But it was a sort of faintly Marxist-sounding yeah. clause, yeah. and it was something yeah. which the Labour Party no longer believed. Even yeah. Dennis Skinner didn't really believe in that as a kind of you know economic policy. So it was symbolic, and then the policy change followed from that. And I think with these missions, I did an event last night with Beth Rigby from Sky of the How-To Academy. And so about five or 600 people there, obviously coming out on a Tuesday night to listen to me and Beth Rigby talk about a book about politics, they're interested in politics. Somebody asked a question about the missions, the five Labour missions. And I, and I asked for a show of hands in the audience, who has heard of the five Labour missions? It was a minority. So my point on that is that they've still got to communicate the basic and, and, big and, picture and, that and they're there trying is a me- to there is, there is a messaging problem. I'm not sure he's quite tightened his language enough. So there were three big words that he was selling the speech. Do you remember what those words were? I mean, I, I can tell respect. you what Respect. Yeah. Um, I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but it's service, respect, and stability. But even when you said service, respect, but I mean, obviously, I love that stuff. Mm. Sounds very conservative. I love service, respect, <laughs> stability. But it doesn't exactly trip off the tongue, does it? Service, respect, stability. There's a lot of S's going on. <laughs> it's kind of him, though. I think this, this respect thing, I know, goes very deep with him. Sibilance, service respect. No, okay, okay. Well, that's, that's, a, that's a bilinguistic point as opposed to a major political strategic point. This respect thing is massive for him. I They're think. also not action words. That's another thing, maybe, service as a communications expert. If I came to you and said my three big words, and I run a campaign on service, respect, and stability, it doesn't, it's not a call to action, exactly, no. is it? But Gordon, listen, Gordon ran on stability and did very, very well. But as a chancellor rather than as the leader of the party. You um, would want to say stability, and this is what Gordon Brown did, if you are the government. Because as George Osborne was saying in our, just to plug it, our leading interview, which is which is out this week, just just go to your podcast feed, search for leading. Leading George, George Osborne. Osborne yeah. mm. In that, he pointed out that basically you've got two strategies. Either you're in opposition, which case you say things have got to change. Mm-hmm. Or you're in government, in which case you have to say stability, basically. You have but to Gordon, say, give Gordon, us a chance. Gordon and you, you had a, in opposition. You had a good phrase for it, though, didn't you? You said, lot done. Lots done. Yeah. Lots to do. Lots to lose. Very good. Mm. And by the way, my friend Eddie Rama in Albania has just had the best election, local election results ever. Amazing. 55 municipalities to six. On the lots done, lots to do, lots now, to lose. I, obviously, Kirstama's not going to be particularly listening to me, but I think I do represent a certain kind of floating voter. And when I saw that speech, I felt there was still not enough optimism, vision and hope. There was quite a lot of, I mean, he did quite a lot on how dare they bail out the bankers and make poor people pay to bail out the banks. Now, as far as I know, Labour Party policy at the time was to provide state support for those banks. He's not laying out what the alternative is there. That's a grudge from 2008-9. Mm-hmm. 
What, who's he playing to there? Where's the, where's, where's the, where's the constituency for that stuff? I, th- I think that's the sort of uh, a, a Labour, a, a sort of strong tribal Labour base that really wants to hear the Tories getting the boot put in, put into them. Um, and did Tony Blair do that? Did you feel you had to do that in 95, 96? Oh, yeah. I mean, t- Tony didn't like doing the sort of nasty negative stuff, but he could do it. I remember when he once, do you remember when he did John Major over the dispatch box? Weak, weak, weak. And you could feel the blow landing with each word. I remember he came out and said, oh, I didn't like doing that. I said, yeah, but you did it. <laughs> and I guess he did it on the ERM. He would have done it on the bailing out of the oh, European yeah. Exchange Rate yeah, 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 and all that sort yeah. of stuff. Yeah. I, think, I think a little bit of iron has entered Keir's soul post-Sunak. I think he's been quite taken aback by how quite nasty Sunak can be, all this lefty lawyer stuff and, and constant misrepresentation. He did it again the other day about the police numbers and the crime figures. and So I think, I, I don't know, I feel Keir's moved into a different gear, but, but I still, I agree, where I agree with you, I still want more in that speech that says this is what Britain's going to be like if you have 10 years of a Labour government. And we like, I think there's a lovely phrase um, that John McCain loved, which is that People like voting for a politician who's a happy warrior. They like the sense of the confident, happy optimism. And well, that was Johnson's strength. That was Johnson's strength, unfortunately. Yeah. But it would be nice to see a little bit of that. Yeah, a bit of happy warrior. Now, should we talk about the Tories? Yeah. You're a lot. I mean, horrifying. So I'm looking at the list. So this is this is something that you've you've raised with us here. And it's called the National Conservatism Conference in London, May 15th to 17th. Uh, led in the confirmed speakers, Suella Braverman, Douglas Murray, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Senator J.D. Vance from the U.S., Lee Anderson, Theodore Dalrymple, who writes these articles in The Spectator, grumbling about, generally grumbling about people on benefits, as far as I can remember, David Frost, John Hayes, Melanie Phillips, Nigel Bigger, who's this theologian at Oxford who's been doing revisionist history on the British Empire, Darren Grimes. It's a pretty, oh. pretty astonishing group of people, isn't horrific, it? Horrific, horrific. Also, I mean, Suella Braverman, she's the Home Secretary in a government led by Rishi Sunak, who yesterday was meeting Zelensky, the leader of Ukraine, to talk about the next stages in an incredibly important military confrontation with Russia. And his home secretary is topping the bill at an organisation, an an event organised essentially to tell Rishi Sunak that his domestic political strategy is all to cock. And some of the speeches, Douglas Murray, who you mentioned, said... It was talking about the, you know, there's nothing wrong with. She had this thing about there's nothing racist about wanting to stop immigrants coming into the country. I always have a problem with people who start their sentence with there's nothing racist about. It usually means they're going to go on to exploit racism if they can. She, he, Douglas Murray made this speech where he said that just because the Germans mucked up a couple of times in the last century, which doesn't mean we should stop feeling proud about our nationality. I mean, that is a pretty amazing historical analogy. Jacob Rees-Mogg, who sat in the cabinet when the voter ID registration bill was being put through, attacked Sunak for doing it and said it was gerrymandering. And Braverman, I'm, this, this lot, honestly, if this was a, the, equi- the left-wing equivalent, the right-wing papers would be going insane with this stuff. Braverman made this joke about Keir Starmer, who doesn't know the difference between a man and a woman. Maybe he'll be end up being the first woman leader of the Labour Party. I mean, they're, they're just... It's pathetic stuff. And then, then Danny Kruger had a big speech on the centrality of family and how... Stick together when uh, you hate yeah. each other. Yeah. For the kids. It's, it's, it's pretty odd because it feels, and including the inclusion of a US Republican senator in this. And also funded by an American think tank. It's all this sort of, you know, where's the money coming from stuff, which never gets asked of the right. But, but very much, this is 
people leaning into American cultural issues. And, of course, Lee Anderson, very central to all of that, who's, who's the, the oh. vice chairman of the party. Well, he's yeah. the guy who said out, Deputy chairman of the he party. Said out loud, you know, the, the last election we had Boris, Brexit and Corbyn. We've got none of those at the next. We've got to have culture wars and trans. But this is why I was talking to a conservative cabinet minister yesterday who was saying that it seems likely, of course, that the conservatives will lose the next election. Is that's that what not, they think now? It's not, not exactly. That's what they think. That's not a big revelation to anyone. But what was striking is how completely confident he was that when they lose, the leading candidates will be from the right and the party will lurch to the right in response to the loss. And that Suella Braverman and Kemi Badnock are the leaders to take over the party. Which, you know what, if Labour do get in, even with a small majority, it could be good for Labour. I think if the Tory party lurches into some sort of post-Faragist ukippery of cultural nonsense. I think it's very, very bad for the country. <laughs> well, I agree with that. I agree with that. I agree it's bad for the country. So I did that politics lie programme. Uh, and Danny Kruger was on the panel, and so was Shami Chakrabarti. And Shami and I didn't always agree about stuff and during the Danny, Danny Kruger was a big supporter of Boris Johnson, was one of his sure. private secretaries before he was elected, was one of the key members of his administration. I wonder how he reconciles his very strong Christian views on marriage with being a strong supporter of Boris Johnson. <laughs> Heaven knows. But what was really fascinating was... We, Shami and I at one point were looking at each other because Danny Kruger was coming out with this stuff about, he was looking at us and pointing at us and saying this, this leftist, uh, sort of, I think he said something like morally transformative agenda. So what, what the hell is he talking about? And then he comes up with this speech about, you know, couples should stay together for the kids. And I just thought the, the whole thing felt weird. I'll tell you the other thing that really made me laugh. You know, the other organisers, we've talked about the, the Nat Cons, as they call themselves. But the day before, you had the other one, the the, the Bannerman, um, Cruddus, Lord Cruddus, Boris Johnson fan club. What's he called? Organisation of Democratic something or other. And somebody sent me. The clips of Priti Patel, Nadine Dorries, Andrea Jenkins and Crudus speaking. You know that thing they have in the corner of the screen which tells you how many people are watching online live? The highest was 66. And you were one of them? Well, I wasn't one of them. Somebody said to me, I reckon 25 of them were Tory MPs who've now got shows on GB News where they talked about this amazing conference that they were all at. But we do give them, we're probably doing it the same now, we're giving them far too much attention. But on Braverman, what... So when Rees Mogg came out and said to that conference yesterday, he said, we will be toast, we'll be finished if we try and change the leader again. I wonder if actually he was trying to signal in a very misleading way to Sunak that his position is safe when actually it's not safe at all. Well, and of course, one of the extraordinary things is that Tory MPs always say that and then often go on and change leaders. I mean, it's, it's a knee-jerk reaction. They said, we'll be toast if we get rid of Boris Johnson, we'll be toast if we get rid of Liz Truss. I think... Rishi Sunak did something which was brave and correct, which was to get rid of this bill, which was going to rip up EU legislation. Mm -hmm. But it's a very, very risky, dangerous thing he did within his party because he got elected on a manifesto. You remember he had a, 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 a video of a shredder. And that has really wound up the Brexit right, who feel profoundly betrayed. And actually, in this um, extremely bad-tempered exchange you had on Newsnight, you had um, you had a was it on Newsnight? Was what bad-tempered exchange? Anyway, with that lady on, it was Newsnight, right? Yeah, it was yeah. Newsnight. Right? Um, in that, I noticed she was also laying into Rishi Sunak and questioning whether he was really a Brexiteer and saying, you know, that he had betrayed his promises and he didn't really believe in the whole project so he's got a very very difficult job trying to hold that did coalition that, together we should probably talk a little bit about the news thing but did that not um damage badnock as well because she's the one who had to present the, the whole thing to the commons as being binned yeah i think it must be difficult for her so that helps braverman uh, probably does yeah probably does although it might make kemi badnock 
paradoxically, there are still probably 100 Tory MPs who see themselves more on the centre-left of the party. So do you think I strayed from the disagreeing agreeably path of enlightenment in the Roy Stewart era of my life? Well, I don't know. I occasionally do it myself. What I notice, being a a sinner myself, um, is... (laughs) Is that is that certainly Shoshana watching it doesn't like seeing either of us getting shouty. She didn't. I mean, when she was watching with me, she didn't particularly blame you for it, but she thought the whole tone of the thing as a as a watcher, you cease to take in the the arguments and you begin to focus. Uh, on I'm it. I'm just very glad that Fiona was in bed and didn't see it. And when she saw I was trending in Twitter on Twitter the next morning, she said, "What have you done?" I said, "I just on Newsnight last night it was a bit of a bit of a problem and um, got a bit aerated." She didn't watch it. So explain. Tell us a bit about it. For people who didn't watch it? So I had put out a speech that I was doing that night about Europe, which I wanted to be about my desire that Labour become a bit bolder on calling out the Brexit disaster. And because the Sunak had announced that they were scrapping the, the retained EU law bill, they asked me if I would go on. I thought I was going to be on, go on with a Jacob Rees-Mogg or a Farage or something like that. Maybe I don't follow these things as close as I should, but I, I'd actually, I didn't even know who she was. I couldn't quite believe... And she was an MEP. She's a former MEP for, who's for now UK. an advisor to Richard Tice, the Reform Party. But a, a UKIP MEP? Or yeah, 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 or the yeah, Brexit Party. Brexit, Brexit Party. Okay. Um, and... <laughs> before uh, this, before we went in there, the Israeli, the, an Israeli MP was about to go on after us with the Palestinian ambassador. I was talking to the Palestinian ambassador about Middle East peace process and such like, and she she got into the conversation and started to try to tell the Palestinian ambassador that people in working class areas in Britain, their cost of living was rising because of Brexit. To which he looked and said. Do you know anything about inflation and how the economy works on inflation? So that I just thought this is not going. So, to so it be. wasn't going well in the green room. It wasn't going badly, but it wasn't going great. And then in the interview, she just came out with stuff that was just utter bilge and factually inaccurate, and uh, you just get sick of it after a while. What I didn't like myself for doing was turning on Victoria Derbyshire. I think I probably did that. Cause and Victoria Derbyshire, the BBC interviewer. Yeah, yeah, who actually, I, I do think there's been a problem with the BBC not calling out these Brexiteers. I mean, you know, the fact that Nigel Farage has been on Question Time more than any other politician in history is ridiculous. They very rarely get pinned to their wall. Well, even last night, New, Farage was on Newsnight last night saying Brexit's a disaster. He's now just commenting on it, despite having been one of the great creators of it. So I got very aerated with, with Victoria. But to be honest, honest, it's one of those things... End of a long day. <sighs> and do you find the process of publishing your book and the reviews and the interviews and all this stuff, is it stressful? Because sometimes what's happening is people are kind of dredging up your past, chucking the Iraq war at you, chucking your time and Downing Street at you. Is that unpleasant for you? Do you have quite a thick skin? Do you mm, worry about it? Do I don't. Know? No, I, I don't. I quite enjoy. Look, I, there will come a point, probably in a couple of weeks, where I'll think, right, I've done the book and i move on to the next thing. Um, so like, on the way here... I went to a school um, just down the road, and I really enjoyed it. Young kids really engaged in politics, all of them getting a book for the asking a question, all that sort of stuff. And it was so that sort of stuff I enjoy. I should I don't know if you're aware, Rory, but I did invent another new word yesterday: podultery. 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 I committed podultery yesterday. Oh yes, I was invited on that show. I was supposed to be asking a surprise question to you on that show. You went on Newsage. I did. Yeah, I did. So you have yeah. to do certain things. As you will find out when politics on the edge is published in September, you have to do all a sorts bit of, of podultery. So I did a bit of podultery, um, and 
what I what was interesting, you mentioned Iraq. They actually taught a lot about the exchanges that we had in Iraq, and they were singing your praises as an interviewer. And they were saying they thought that you got more out of me on Iraq than anybody else ever had. That's very kind. I don't agree with that, but you know for, that's for what they thought. Listen, just just a whip. Anyway, no, I don't find it that difficult. I just I know when I'll have reached the end of. But but, but it's not been too painful. No, um, I was in Paris yesterday. And I was in a square outside the Senate where for five months, Catholic protesters were protesting a change on surrogate mothers. And I was reminded how very different the culture wars are in places like France from the culture wars here. In France and the United States, so much of it is driven by religion. And whatever's happening in the National Conservatism Conference and the culture wars that Lee Anderson and Suella Bravman are stoking up here. It feels to me as though Britain is still a much, much more secular society. And so despite the fact you get, you know, J.D. Vance, who's a U.S. senator, wanting to talk about keeping the family together and all that stuff, it's got a completely different resonance in the U.S. or even, I think, in Catholic countries in Europe. To so the what's, the issue, what's the issue in France? So that was, I, I'm just reminded of it again and again. I keep forgetting that one of the things that is a continual challenge, is that there is still a conservative religious Catholic element in, in, in French politics that doesn't like liberal progressive reforms brought in by Francois, your friend Francois Hollande on things like surrogate mothers. And I was just reminded that for five months they'd sat well, in that square outside the Senate protesting it. And that, what about the assisted dying thing? Is that not seen as a religious thing? Because Macron's moving the dial on that pretty fast. Well, I, th- I think it's a huge thing. And I think we underestimate how much in all these countries, when you and I naturally applaud progress in Ireland or France on all these issues, how there is often 40% of the population that remains very, very mm. uncomfortable about these things and probably very resentful of the politicians that introduce them. Right, on that I will take a break. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. 
Welcome back to The Rest is Politics with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. And Alistair looking extremely sort of fresh, notwithstanding the middle of his book tour. Looking fresh? Yeah, I think you're looking pretty fresh. Okay, I had a good swim this morning. Doing well? You went for another one of your cold swims? I did. Very good. It's not very cold at the moment, 16 degrees. Was that in London or here in Yorkshire where we're recording? It was in the Lido. I might find somewhere in West Yorkshire tomorrow. Now, what's the population of Turkey? Population of Turkey... I don't know, what's the population? 85.2 million. Very good. Thailand, 71.6. Which is roughly the same as the United Kingdom. Yep. And how much have you heard on the British media about the elections in Thailand? Very little. Are you going to tell us about them? Well, I think they're fascinating because the party that's been running the place, which is very pro-military. And pro-king. And very pro-king, have been absolutely battered. A party that's clearly taken a lot of lessons from... Emmanuel Macron, calling itself the Move Forward Party, you could almost say en marche, progressive, youth-led, actually at the heart of their campaign, something that could be seen as a crime because they're actually calling for reform of the monarchy and they have the whole les majestés thing that you're not allowed to... It's 15 years, top sentence, for criticising the the monarchy. Or indeed their pets. (laughs) Or indeed their pets, exactly, or anything they wear. Yeah. Um, They have campaigned on reducing the power of the military, ending conscription, new constitution, and they've done incredibly well. One one way I saw it described is that what made them different from the party that came second, which is the traditional populist party, is, as you say, their focus is on institutional reform. People didn't really think they were going to get anywhere. Mm. Institutional reform is not usually a sexy subject. People argued that the reform to the constitution and the election rules made it very difficult for this party to come through. And despite new types of electoral system, which is a parallel system, bit first past the post, Mm. bit PR, they've managed to come romping through over 30% of the vote. And then the parties with which the former prime minister, Priyat Chinucha, is associated, between them, he's got two parties, one that he used to run and one that he now does, 76 seats between them. So they're finished. But what's terrible about this whole system is that the prime minister now has to be chosen by a by 250 members of the Senate who have been appointed by the military. So even though these guys have won, it's not clear how they're going to put together a coalition. But it is an absolute, we go on about populism, and we'll obviously talk about Erdogan. This is a total defeat of the populists. Well, it's, it's, a, it's, it's extraordinary. It's a defeat for the populists, and it's a defeat for the crusty military conservatives, who are sort of two different bits of Thailand, for a new progressive movement that's very exciting and took credible numbers of seats in Bangkok, took a lot of seats in Chiang Mai, which is the second largest city, led by this charismatic, Mm. a graduate from actually the Harvard Kennedy School, where I used to teach a bit. He was there when I was there. I didn't think he took my classes. This is Peter Limjaroinat. And then the other guy, one of the candidates who, who led the youth movement in the, the protests against the government in 2020. He's still in his 20s, and he won, a, won one of these seats in, in Bangkok. And I think, they owned, I think they won all but one of the constituencies in Bangkok. So it's a pretty big story. But, um, and then you've, you've now got this, um, whether they'll be able to form a government on the basis that they can, they're going to deliver on some of these promises of reforming the military and reforming the, the monarchy. We'll wait and see. So a so little, little positive history of uh, Thailand. So the Thailand was ruled for more than 70 years by the current king's father, who ruled at the kind of length that Queen Elizabeth II or the Emperor Hirohito ruled, all the way from just after the Second World War through the 2000s. 
was very much caught up in U.S. Cold War politics because you remember the domino theory and the whole idea was that if Vietnam fell, Thailand was going to be the next to fall. So the U.S. really invested in the 50s and 60s in trying to back generally quite right-wing anti-communist governments in Thailand. In 92, it had its breakthrough into democracy, which the old king was incredibly important for, a bit like I think the King of Spain coming in after Franco. There was a very famous image where the general and the main opposition leader knelt in front of the king. And the king basically told them to get on with the elections. And this vision of these two people kneeling in front of him was incredibly important. And it was, of course, one of the real economic miracles. This is a country which um, in 1980 had a GDP per capita of about $1,500 and is now up at $10,000 per capita in, in, in not even in purchasing power parity terms, in, in absolute dollar terms. Uh, was hit very hard by this financial crisis in 97, bounced back by about 2004-05. And even with all these changes, because there were these horrible military coups, which have happened now twice in the since 2000, at a time when you felt the world was ever more democratizing, Thailand was the exception to the rule, military coups happening, but still hasn't basically thrown it off the course of very, very impressive economic growth, slightly reduced by the military but still one of the great miracles of the world. Mm. It's poverty, extreme poverty rate in Thailand now, something like 0.03% of people... Do you give directly work there? ...are living under $2. No, we don't, because it's much too wealthy. Now, given that we want to be prosecuted under the Thai laissez-majesté rules, um, let me just tell people a little bit about the King of Thailand, Ah, which nobody's allowed to talk about. We don't want to be prosecuted. We don't want to be prosecuted. We like the fact that we can criticise our own king, though very, very few people do, especially you. Have you ever criticised our king? Uh, No. (laughs) No, And is that a point of principle? Well, I do really admire him. Mm. I I do think he's wonderful. King Vajira Longkom, who's the current king, do you know where he lives? No. Munich. Lives in Bavaria. Right. Why? <laughs> Why? Well, it's, it's actually a sort of family tradition. His his father, largely until he became king, lived in Switzerland. But it appears that um, he has a, a lady love and he has been spending most of his time living in Bavaria. And this is one of the large objections of the Thai people that their king... Do they, know, do they all know that? Yes, everyone knows but that. How do they know that if you can't... Criticise them. Well, it's, it's difficult to get the news out, but occasionally it comes out. I mean, some of it comes out for things like WikiLeaks. So the US ambassador wrote this wonderful report about Air Chief Marshal Fufu, uh, who was the poodle belonging to the king, who turned up at a diplomatic reception dressed in a full evening gear, including diamante little um, shoes that covered, I guess, his paws, and was allowed to dance over the tables drinking from the US ambassador's drink. Also in Wikilinks uh, was a famous video of Fufu's birthday hosted by the king and the queen who appeared topless for the for the birthday party. So anyway, the king's reputation as a party boy, he's now 70 years old. Yeah, living uh, in Munich. Living in Munich uh, and the relationships with Fufu and what's called his profound moments of eccentricity compared to the very, very revered status of his father, who for 70 years was seen as an extraordinary sort of force for, for good and religious propriety in Thailand, is, is at the heart of But does the king not have to do stuff in Thailand? Does he keep having to flip back to Thailand to do ceremonial stuff? No, he, he, he doesn't do very much of that, no. And in fact, there was a tradition in the Thai royal house of not doing very much of that. Quite a lot of them in the 20s and 30s were ruling from Europe. Turkey? Turkey. Erdogan's going to win. 
Erdogan's going to win because he... So it's gone to a runoff, mm-hmm. May 26th, I think. 28th. May 20th, very good. But he almost got it, 49% of the vote. So it's going to be very, very difficult for him not to make it through. And also, the guy who's taken the 5%, the third guy, he's even further to the right than Erdogan. So it's very hard to see that 5% going back to the opposition. Absolutely. And the opposition leader, to add to his problems, had support from the Kurdish party. And Erdogan's whipping up the fact he had support from the Kurdish party to turn out the conservative vote. I mean, there's a small hope that now people see Erdogan as vulnerable. Mm. They may change their minds in the election. So I wouldn't completely write it off, but it looks like he's going to be able to win. The other thing that's interesting, we talked a bit about the... I mean, I think we have been consistent about saying that we think that Erdogan probably would end up winning. But he actually did incredibly well in the earthquake zones where there'd been an assumption that they'd handle it so badly. So I, I, you remember we did a podcast when mm. I was in the earthquake zones, yeah. and I was actually quite struck by how much the Turkish state had mobilised. He'd moved governors who were like French préfets, they're sort of appointed people, down. And I was in a room with one of these Turkish governors running the response near Gaziantep, and it was pretty impressive. He had all the military and the police, and they lined up, they had the maps out, they were, and trucks were pouring in. So I, I can see that working. In a sense, that's what he made his reputation. He made his reputation, Erdogan made his reputation in Istanbul in the 90s as a guy who got things done. He was, and even when he was president, it was all about the fact he doubled the number of roads in the country. He massively increased water supply, bridges. He loves big public infrastructure. He also did a huge public sector pay deal just before the election. Uh, I mean, like huge for raising the minimum wage, big civil service pay rises. And I guess the other thing, I mean, Jonathan Powell's brother, Chris, who's quite involved in politics in different parts of the world, and he he was involved with the the Istanbul mayor, Imamoglu, who we've talked about before, who I think would have been a much better opposition leader. And of course, they managed to get him stuck away in jail for a bit because he criticised the election authorities, which are entirely appointed by Erdogan. And also, it was strange watching... I watched the... um, I actually took a leaf out of your book and I watched the live coverage on Al Jazeera, which was pretty good, to be fair. I was channel hopping between them and and CNN. But what was... When you saw the numbers all being announced by the official Turkish news agency, which is pretty much controlled by Erdogan... And it was clearly designed to try to make the opposition people who were watching the the, the, the vote counting just give up, um, and and it, so they held in, and they're going to they they're still there, they're still in the fight. But I find it very very hard, unless because the turnout was so high, it was something like eighty eight point two percent, eighty eight point nine two percent, and so. It's very hard to see where those people who might think, oh, my God, yeah, maybe we could beat him, given that the polls were saying that was going to happen anyway. So he's sort those of... Those turnout figures are unbelievable, aren't they? I mean, I don't think anyone gets those kind of turnout figures. No, it's, well, other than you, unless you have compulsory voting. The other thing I looked into, the Tur- a lot of Turks obviously living around the European Union. The vote for Erdogan in the 1.5 million Turks living in Germany, 65.4%. So very, very struck by how much German politicians are interacting with this, partly because, I mean, as you say, you had a figure of just over a million, but in fact, three million Germans, I think, were born in Turkey and seven million have Turkish ancestry. Yeah, and and, and because the Germans have been quite tight on giving them German passports, a lot of them will still be Turkish citizens, even born there. And it was even higher in the Netherlands, 68% of the Netherlands, 64% of France and 71% of Turks living in Austria. Voting for Erdogan. Voting for Erdogan. And a lot of them, I, I read a thing in Bild Zeitung where they were saying that the reason 
is because they really resent the way that European politicians talk about Turkey and talk about Erdogan. I was thinking about his career. I was also thinking about the, the similarities with Imam Oglu. Both of them went to um, quite conservative Islamist backgrounds. Erdogan grew up as a teenager, literally on the streets selling water bottles, selling simit, which is like a big pretzel. Then didn't probably go to university. He claims he did, but there's no real record of that. Was a footballer, so mm-hmm. you'd relate to that. And Imam Oglu was also actually a semi-professional yeah. footballer. Goalkeeper. He's got a very, he's, Erdogan's got a very kind of athletic build. Which he's, he never smiles, does he? It's very strange for a politician. But then he became, I remember from the 90s through to about 2014, was such a kind of hopeful figure. When he came in in the early 2000s, he very, very quickly did these amazing reforms. He said very progressive things about gay rights. He got rid of the death penalty. He tried to run a peace process with the Kurds. Yeah. But a lot of this was about EU accession. And when that began going sour, in about 2014, and we talk about 2014 as the beginning of the age of populism in a sense, because that's when Modi comes in in India, that's when ISIS take Mosul, and that's the point at which things change with, with Erdogan, that's the point at which he becomes president. It's interesting you say that, because I hadn't really thought about it, because I've forgotten it, but when we've talked before about the first time with Tony that we met Putin, similar with Erdogan, he was seen as a, a kind of reformist, West-leaning, or pro-Atlanticist, and this campaign, I mean, Biden has been a big part of this campaign. It's essentially, he's been saying, you know, vote for me to put Biden in his place. It's, it's a com- almost a complete reversal of where he was. Obama's first international trip and first big speech was yeah. made in Turkey in 2009 because Turkey was seen as this fantastic example of moderate Islamists, Western-friendly NATO members trying to join the European Union and a model for what Syria could be, Iraq could be, all these other countries could be, mm. without an invasion, without an intervention, a sort of positive, locally-led move. And then suddenly from 2014 onwards, it all begins to go pretty horribly wrong. There's this coup, which there are still lots of questions about. Was it a real coup against him? Was it a coup he himself staged? He then drove this crackdown, which ended up with 91,000 people being arrested. Mm. Whole areas of civil service cleaned out. Then he brought through a new constitution that he got through on a 52-48 referendum. You remember that kind of stuff, which basically strengthened the power of the presidency against judiciary, built a $300 million presidential palace, started flirting with the Russians, bought their air defense systems, started getting very, very aggressively involved in Somalia, in Libya, and this kind of Ottoman expansion muscle stuff. Um, And then went full on eccentric on his economic policy in 2018. It's still there. Yeah, where he wiped out half the value of his currency in a year, mm-hmm. drove incredible numbers of companies to bankruptcy with an absolute, and we, we talk about this, but it's the opposite of austerity. He was a great believer in borrow, 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 mm-hmm. and putting the interest rates as low as possible. And he's still doing it with inflation. Well, yeah. it's coming down a little bit now, yeah. but it's way, way, way beyond what most countries do. with. I mean, you've taken us neatly into that that part. Another thing happening in, in that part of the world that you've been talking about, which is Syria, back in the Arab League. <laughs> is, is this another string to the bow of David Miliband talking about the age of impunity? Well, it's extraordinary, isn't it? So that is an announcement that's just come out, and it's been led by Saudi Arabia and UAE and opposed by Jordan and, and Qatar. Qatar. Yeah, It's absolutely astonishing. I mean, heartbreaking for the Syrian opposition because... 
they famously gave speeches in the Arab League 10 years ago. They were given the, the Syrian seat, weren't they? Absolutely. And said that, yeah. And, and now find themselves absolutely out in the cold. Meanwhile, the Syrian economy, we, we've been talking a lot about Thailand, um, Turkey, Syria. I just had some figures that I, that I was looking at about how these different countries have fared since 1980. So Thailand, GDP per capita, $700 in 1980, $8,000 today, 11 times richer. Turkey, $2,000, $1980, today, five times richer. Very, very, you know, impressive stuff. South Korea, 15 times growth. But Syria, Syria has gone from a situation in which they were at $2,000 in 1980, reached $10,000 in 2007, and are now down at $1,200 per capita. They have basically pushed 30% of their population to extreme poverty, 70% now unemployed. And they've gone from being uh, an upper-middle-income country to being one of the poorest countries in the world. Due well, 300,000 of them are dead in the current situation. The other thing I didn't realise was the extent to which one of the reasons why the Saudis are so keen to get this thing sorted is because they, Mohammed bin Salman, as he goes towards his vision 2030, doesn't want his neighbours kind of, you know, with all this trouble going on. But I hadn't realised that this drug, Captagon, an amphetamine, is now Syria's largest export. It's effectively become a mafia state. And, and members of his family, Assad's family, are sanctioned because of their trade in this, yeah. and this drug. And, and the British uh, have put out a paper saying that 80% of the world trade in Captagon. So Captagon is, um, as you say, it's an amphetamine related to phenylephrine, which some of us get in our cold medication. But obviously this is... You're the, you're the drugs expert on this podcast, having taken opium. Yeah, what does this one do to you, this Captagon? Well, so originally developed in the 1960s to deal with attention deficit disorder okay. and narcolepsy. Uh, and then by the early 70s, people began cutting down on its use because of its psychotic effects. Uh, and by the middle of the 80s, almost nobody was producing it anymore. And then a Bulgarian gang began shipping it through with Balkan traders into the Middle East developed a huge market for it in places like UAE and Saudi. They then moved their production facilities. The Bulgarians, the Turks cracked down on this uh, in the early 2000s. Production facilities started again in Syria. And according to the British, the Syrian regime and Assad is currently making three times the volume of trade of the Mexican drug cartels, this thing called Captagon. It's incredible. But, but, but I mean, virtually everybody in the world knows about the Mexican drug cartels, but I didn't even know about this until recently. It's extraordinary. And and the Saudis just found, I think, 4.6 million pills hidden in flour. The UAE's just found pills hidden in green bean shipments. And it's all coming through from Syria. The, so the, the Jordanians, there's a new committee being set up with the Saudis, Lebanon, uh, Jordan, Iraq, who are looking at all of these issues, amnesties, return of refugees, drug smuggling, and how to rein in Russian and Iranian influence. That's quite a big agenda. And, and it seems to me they'll achieve none of those things. I think another thing that is difficult here is it's another sign of the way in which the Saudi-US relationship is breaking apart. Because the US has been very, very clear that they do not like the idea of normalizing relationships, Bashar al-Assad. And there's a pattern now of Saudi deliberately poking the United States in the mm. eye, partly because they feel humiliated, 
partly Biden uh, called them a prior state. Trump refused to support Saudi when there were these attacks from Houthi against the Houthi Iranian-backed terrorists against um, oil terminals. But since Mohammed bin Salman's come in, there's been a lot of this stuff. Do you remember when the US made requests on their oil production because of sanctions against Ukraine Russia, they completely ignored it and basically helped the Russians with their move on oil quotas. We talked about the um, theatricality of Biden's visit to Northern Ireland and who greets him at the airport and how people behave. When he landed in Saudi Arabia, there was a very deliberate snub. They sent a very junior prince to meet him at the airport. Whereas when Xi Jinping arrived, there was, everybody was there, Mohammed bin Salman, huge state ceremony. And this is another sign of the Saudis again and again saying, we're not going to be told what to do by the United States anymore. We want to be treated entirely as an equal partner. And actually, we care much more about getting our relationships right with Israel, Iran, Syria, than worrying about what the US strategy is. Well, the Americans is. put out a very, very strong statement uh, saying they didn't believe Syria merited, merited readmission. All sanctions remain. On, on that rather complicated <laughs> note, um, maybe we're going to bring it to an end. Um, we'll chat again at question time. Excellent. See you soon.